I'm Travis Bader, and this is the Silver Core Podcast. Join me as I discuss matters related to hunting, fishing, and outdoor pursuits with the people and businesses that comprise the community. If you're new to Silver Core, be sure to check out our website, www.silvercore.ca, where you can learn more about courses, services, and products that we offer, as well as how you can join the Silver Core Club, which includes 10 million in North America-wide liability insurance ensure you are properly covered during your outdoor adventures. Today I'm speaking with Rick Brazel, who spent 36 years in the U.S. Forest Service managing land and in 2015 started the First Hunt Foundation, where he and his team of volunteers provide mentorship and guidance for those wishing to get into hunting. Rick, welcome to the Silver Core Podcast. Thanks, Travis. Really enjoy being here. So specifically, I want to speak about the First Hunt Foundation, how it got started, what it does, as well as some of the challenges and successes that you've had. But first, I'd like to get a little bit more into the background on you. Like, where did you grow up and what ignited your passion for hunting? Oh, wow. That's a, that's a great one. I grew up in Texas, you know, so I'm a long way from, from home. So if you hear a little bit of a Southern accent, that's because I'm from the South. And I grew up in the country. I went to a little school that had like 85 students, K through 12. So we're talking small. Wow. <laughs> yeah. Wow. I mean, you, you know everybody and, and their parents. And so no you kidding. couldn't get by with anything. And of course, lived out in the, my dad was the bus mechanic for the little school. So I lived on a, a, a city block surrounded by fields and farmland. And so I just had an interest early on to, to hunt to go get a BB gun, go out and chase things. And, and the poor metal arcs back then weren't safe. And I look at it now going, I shouldn't have done that. But when you're a kid, it's, you know, <laughs> sparrows and metal arcs and anything else, it was fair game. Sure. Uh, so I just had an interest in hunting for a long, long time. And my dad wasn't a hunter, which was kind of made it hard for me because I didn't have somebody to train me. I mean, he had a shotgun, but he didn't really hunt. And so mm. I had to learn it on my own, basically. That's a tough way to do it. Yeah, yeah, it was it was tough. And so when I was about in the eighth grade, my a buddy of mine at school, he wanted to be a hunter too, and his dad didn't hunt. So we kind of figured it out on our own. We got our own guns, and and it's a little bit like the Christmas story. I got my first deer rifle when I kept I saving up. I had a mason jar, had duct tape on it, so I couldn't get into it as a kid. And it had deer rifle on it. My parents got a kick out of that because I put every little coin I could or every little bit of money I made because I was going <laughs> to buy my first deer rifle with that. And then I was going to get an old British 303 because it was cheap. Yeah. And, I, and my dad and my mom were smart. And one Christmas, after we opened all the gifts, uh, they said, well, look behind the tree. And there was a deer rifle behind the tree. It was pretty, it was great. Wow. My parents supported my passion. And I was in the eighth grade. I remember that. And so wow. now I had a, had a 243 and watch out world because here I come. <laughs> <laughs> well, you're a bit of an anomaly. Most people don't get into hunting unless they've had a family member, mother, father, aunt, uncle, somebody to kind of get them into it. Yeah, exactly. And uh, that's part of the reason we, you know, the foundation's there because I, I found there's a lot of, especially youth, we're finding a lot of adults now too, but especially youth that would like to get into hunting like I wanted to, but their parents are nobody in their family hunts and they're looking for somebody to teach them. And that's kind of where the foundation started. And it's like, let's find these kids and help them out. 
And what happened, I was, yeah, I was in Washington State, living in Washington State, working for the U.S. Forest Service, and, and I had 20 acres there, and it was surrounded by alfalfa fields, and in the evenings, the deer would just go to the fields, but they wouldn't go to my pasture because it was just grass, pasture grass. And so in Washington State, you can put up feeders, so I put up a feeder, and I had deer coming. They would stop to my place before they'd go to the alfalfa. And I set up a stand, and I made a deal with any kid that wanted to shoot their first deer, they could come to my place. I had seven kids come with their parents or me sitting in that stand, and they all were successful in getting their first deer. And years later, I mean years later, they would come up to me on the street and thank me and say, Hey, Mr. Brazel, I remember shooting my first deer. I just wanted to thank you. I'll never forget that. And it hit me. What if I could duplicate that feeling of excitement thousands of times instead of just these, you know, seven times? And so I played with that in my head until I retired, trying to figure out what am I going to do with my life when I retired? I thought, I want to create an organization that gives those first hunt experiences to thousands and thousands of people. And that's kind of where it started was those, those seven kids getting their first deer on that 20 acres in Washington state. So Wow. That, so wh when did you retire? I retired now about six years ago and okay. started the foundation immediately when I retired. And, and yeah, I was just know doing the math gonna, there. Yeah, yeah. And I didn't realize it was going to be so successful that it just blossomed and took off. And, and now we're operating in 28 states and have almost 500 volunteer mentors, just about 10 shy of that, uh, in those 28 states that are taking people out we did like 4,000 days last year so 4,000 days of people getting out on their first hunts or training we count the days of training as well because you can't just go out you know usually without learning how to hold a gun shoot a gun that sort of thing right all, all the things that you the hunter ed course doesn't teach you right yeah yeah and, and we don't do the hunter ed stuff that's the state's responsibilities down here to do that right. we don't that's kind of, we tell folks, what do we got to do? We'll say, take your state stuff, get that done, and we can even help them figure it out. And then we take them from there. We're the next step. Right. Yeah, we've got, of course, in Canada, hunter ed courses differ province by province, similar to in the states. And the most common concern or complaint that people come out of it with is, it didn't really prepare me to hunt. It teaches yeah. me the laws, it teaches me regulations, it teaches me identification, and there's all these important pieces around hunting that you, a new hunter should know, but the big part of it, the learning how to hunt isn't covered in hunter education. Right. And it's actually with the pandemic, it's, it's got a little bit more lax and I understand why, but mm. in our particular state, they don't even do a field day now. For now, mm. they did. In the past, you'd have to do your course and spend a day in the field. And they said, because of the pandemic, you can take it online and never even meet an instructor face-to-face -face and get your hunter education certificate. So there's, in my opinion, a massive disconnect between hunter education training and, and hunting. And that disconnect would be mentorship, something in between. And we, we live in a society now where the younger generation, they're on Facebook and Instagram and TikTok and their, their social connections <laughs> are, are, are done virtually for, by and large. And I'm, and I'm seeing a trend towards a desire for 
I, I guess, more intimate connections, more real connections with, with other individuals. And I'm, I'm starting to see, uh, organizations like the, uh, the R3 movement, right? The R3 yes. movement is, uh, um, the, what is that? The retain and recruit and reintroduce or recruit, retain, reintroduce yep. hunters. Yep. And we're big into that. We, we didn't start out that way. R3 wasn't even around when we started, or at least it was in its infancy. And I, we were involved. The foundation was involved in going to early on meetings, trying to figure out what it was about. And, uh, but it does stand for recruiting new hunters and retaining those that are thinking maybe they're losing interest and then re-engaging those that have left the hunting and get them Mm -hmm. back. And, And we do all of that. Our foundation, you know, we're chasing getting mentors to take new people out. We are keeping people interested by giving them something to do. And we're, mm-hmm. we're re-engaging folks that are left. A lot of people say, well, my kids are all gone out on honey anymore. And we say, well, well, heck, we'll find you a kid or help you find the kids. Some people joked about it, rent a kid, you know, it's not really, but <laughs> it's like, we'll find you a person to take hunting. And then that gets them back into the, into the sport, which is a whole nother thing. It kind of bothers me to call it a sport, but it's been called that for years. Sure. I think people know what we're talking about when we say sport, but. Right. Um, yeah, you know, I mean, uh, just this last year, my son got his first deer and 11 years old, 10 years old, got his hunting license. That's all he wanted. He says, I, I want to walk in. I want to do my exam. I want to go to the government office. I want to, and in British Columbia, we call it a fish and wildlife ID card. So I want to get my FWID. And the first year he was going out and learning about the species coming on, on hunting trips, but he's getting, getting to carry around a rifle and get used to what that feels like unloaded but he didn't harvest any animals and we've got something called waterfowl heritage days. So a week prior to harvesting his first deer, uh, a couple from the local sporting goods store out here said, Hey, tell you what, we got access to land. We've got a dog, we've got the blind, we've got all the decoys and gear. Would your son like to come out in waterfowl heritage days? And these guys get nothing out of it other than the enjoyment of reintroducing, and I shouldn't say they get nothing out of it, but obviously there's a lot that mentors get out of it, but it is geared around the new hunter. Anyways, my son got his first duck and at the end of the day, he was, he was very thrilled, so proud of himself. And he says to me afterwards, he says, you know, I didn't know what it'd be like. And obviously you don't until you've, you've been there, but now I know. Now, now I'm confident I can go out and I can go hunt that deer because he had a limited entry draw for a deer. So that whole mentorship process is invaluable for new hunters, but it's also like you're pointing out a very valuable tool to hunters who've been doing it for a long time and they want to pass their knowledge on to somebody else. Well, you know, it's so fulfilling to see somebody else learn and grow. A lot of our mentors tell us that, and I, I personally would say that last year, well, not the pandemic year, the year before, I did 50-something days of taking youth out. Wow. And then 30-something days of me hunting. And I, so 80-something days in the field hunting, and I'm thinking, I think I died and went to heaven because that's <laughs> that's kind of what I love doing. But You're I living the life. A, yeah, I had, I had more fun taking those youth out and teaching them, and they get their first animal, and it could be a doe. But they were so excited that it could have sure. been a you know thirty inch mule deer buck or whatever, 
but to them it was just it was just and then I, and then there's a folks that are don't have money i mean there's one like, lady that's a widowed grandmother raising sure. three of her grandsons because the parents didn't do well in life i won't go into that but sure. she's having struggles and when that's one son got a deer that was food for their table and they cried when she thanked me for helping them not only teach their grandson a skill and get him out doing something besides being on a computer, but mm. they had lots of meals out of it, and they were so excited. That, to me, when, when that happens, it's like you've changed somebody's life. You're not just giving them a one-day experience. You're changing their entire life. You really are. Yeah. Yeah, you you really are. Well, I, I should imagine – and it looks like you just came on like gangbusters. You've already got 500 mentors across the country in a, a relatively short period of time. How, how did you get this started? Well, we, we knew we had to find people, mentors. I mean, locally mm -hmm. we found a bunch real quick because you talk to your friends and that sort of thing. And then we started thinking, well, let's figure out how, where do we go to find these people? We could advertise, of course, but where do you advertise? And we started thinking, well, let's go to the big outdoor shows because there's a lot of those down here in the States. And, so, and some of them have like 50,000 people go. And all those 50,000 people are going to those outdoor hunting shows because they're into hunting. And mm. so we put up a booth and big booth and people, you know, we kind of grab them when they come by, try to get them to come over and talk to us. And we were starting to sign up mentors that way. And before you know it, we had 50 and 100. And, and of course, they talk to their friends and buddies and go, hey, you need to be part of this. And then we, we get more that way. One of the, one of the kind of, the, I don't know if it's a color to catch, but it was fun. We created a simulated Nerf hunting range, not a shooting range, a hunting range. So we had these Nerf guns and we had this background that had deer and elk and bear and moose and ducks instead of rounds and black circles which most target things have for kids and then we had these little nerf guns that had scopes on them they looked like a gun except they were bright colored and we've mm -hmm. had over seven thousand kids go through that at these shows and so when the kids come over and they're shooting and we celebrate oh you got an elk what are you going to do with all that meat versus <laughs> oh you hit the bullseye and they're right. grinning for, they're grinning from ear to ear the parents are grinning from ear to ear and then we kind of hook the parents because they're probably hunters and say hey how about joining our organization so they're seeing their kid have a good time that we provided mm -hmm. uh, and some of them it's the first time they ever thought about and some of them aren't hunters and they've they shot a never even shot a gun they don't even know how to hold a plastic gun let alone a real gun mm. and then we're not training them to be hunters we're just saying hey here's an experience you could could build on you could actually go out in the world later and maybe shoot a real deer and so right. anyway seven thousand people went through that but again with the pandemic uh, it's a pretty much of a germ fest <laughs> <laughs> when you've got all these plastic guns laying on the table and you've literally got four kids and four behind them and you know it's like oh, you can't keep it clean no everyone's rubbing them on their faces and <laughs> oh yeah I've, I've seen them wipe their sleeve you know their nose on yeah. their sleeve and then pick up the gun and just kind of and we uh, wipe them we did wipe them down before the pandemic but now i'd be kind of scared to put them out there but but, but anyway, it was a great experience. It was a way to get the parents there. And we, we recruited a lot of people from those kind of, kind of things as well as raffles. Yeah. Just boots on the ground work at the different shows. 
so I, I should imagine now you guys don't charge anything. You guys don't charge anything for a person to come on their first hunt with you. Do you, they, they pay their own way for whatever it is. And, but you're, you're not charging any extra on top of that. Are you? No, we don't allow uh, any charges at all. In fact, we've told our mentors that if we find out that you're even t- accepting money for gas, then you will, won't be a mentor anymore. And the reason for that is several reasons for that. One is we're a nonprofit. We're doing this for the cause and for the good. And mm. even though there is expenses, people are willing to donate some gas for a day or, or shells or a gun. And most of these new people don't have any equipment, so they're having to use the mentor's equipment. The other thing, in, in the states anyway, for a lot of states down here, there's a, a lot of rules on guiding. And so right. we don't even use, we don't even allow the word guide to be used in our vernacular. It's just because it has a legal connotation that if you're not a licensed guide, you can't do it in certain states. And some people would say, well, you're guiding. No, we're teaching. We're not guiding. We're not just taking right. them out to get an animal. We're trying to teach them conservation and how everything, hunter ed, kind of all of the above, whereas a guide would just take you out and shoot the animal. Right. And that was where I was going with the question. Essentially, did you receive pushback from any of the states or any of the guide outfitter organizations? No, we haven't. Not yet. And I hope we don't. Uh, partly the reason I don't think we will is because the, well, the R3 we mentioned earlier, the states are just like, how do we, how do we implement this thing? When they hear about us, they go, oh my gosh, here's a nonprofit doing what we want. Let's put our arm around them and help these guys. And it's the states usually that would be on the other side of that with the outfitters and guides because they control the outfitter and guide boards. So, so far we've not had that. I suppose it could happen. You know, some outfitter felt like, well, you took a kid bear hunting that they would have paid me to take them, but you took them for free. So. Mm. Now, do you guys keep metrics on the uh, individuals coming through sort of, uh, maybe where they're, they're, um, country kid, city kid, um, uh, gender uh, demographics, any of these sort of things. Do you guys kind of keep an eye on that? Yeah, we do. We didn't at first, but as we first couple of years and we started thinking, well, we need to, to, uh, keep track of this. So we started tracking, uh, youth, whether they are a youth, first of all, Eight, mm. less than 18, and then we started tracking whether they're male or female. So we know how many boys and girls are there. We started tracking uh, gender for adults as well, but we, didn't, we don't track uh, specific stuff like um, a species. One of the things we got to – we're working on an app. <laughs> we hope that, that the app will help us collect more data, and people can do it in real time. Because let me tell you, one of the issues with this thing, and it's been – it's like pulling teeth is to get the mentors to give you data because at the end of the year, end of the year, we contact them and go, Hey, how many people did you take out in all these categories? And less than half of them will respond. And then it puts the burden on us to call them and say, please, would you give us this data? And it's kind of like, it's not that they're negative against it, but they're like everybody else. They get inundated. You know, I don't want to do another survey. And so, sure. so getting that data is hard. So we're, we're working on trying to get an app. And if we had anybody that helped us develop a phone app, that'd even be better. So you could do it in real time. So literally get on your phone and go, I'm, I'm doing a training day. I'm doing it with a 12 year old or, you know, male or whatever. 
and then boom, it's done. Because what happens now at the end of the year, we hit them up and they're sitting there going, oh my gosh, what did I do? I got to look back into the entire year and try to remember what I did, you mm-hmm. know, how many days and who I went with. And we used to give out a and little Nobody book. wants to do that paper. Nobody wants to do that. And I used to give out a little hard copy book and I was spending a lot of money printing it, which had all that information in it, plus their miles that they could put on taxes. And nobody was mm. filling it out. They'd tell me, oh, I forget about it. I put it in my glove box or jockey box, and I never remember it. So we're trying to get – that's kind of one of those deals. If we could f- just figure a way to make it simple for people, we could get more data. So one thing that we've noticed up here is there seems to be a a renewed push for people to get out in the outdoors. I mean, COVID has locked everybody down, and we're seeing a lot more interest in – in the shooting sports, we're seeing a lot more interest in just being outdoors, but hunting in particular, we're seeing a lot of interest there. Are you finding the same thing with the First Hunt Foundation? Yes. Yeah, we are. We're getting a lot more adults. This last year, I oh, it's been a great increase in the adults coming to us wanting to do it versus the kids. I mean, we're still doing mostly, mm. mostly youth, but. I've been surprised. We had a 73-year-old lady contact us. She called me up one day. I was actually helping trying to find a deer for a kid that lost it. And she Mm. said, I want to hunt. And I bought a gun, and I'm a real good shot. And my my buddies, I called three of them, and they said they'd take me, and none of them would take me. So I heard about you. Will you take me? (laughs) Mm -hmm. And we said, sure, we'll take you out. So we took her out, and she subsequently missed and so the mentor said, well, let's go shoot your gun. Well, the gun was way off. So uh, she never did sight it in. She bore sighted it, so she thought it was on. And so yeah. we had to. We took a step forward and had to take two steps back and um, took her out. I took her out with another guy, and she missed a couple of hard shots. And so we'll take her out again this next yeah. year and uh, get her. But anyway, we, so we're getting a lot of these older, the older generation adult folks that are coming to us and they're a little bit embarrassed to ask like well i don't know what to who to ask i don't want you know it's a little bit humbling to say i don't know something because sure. kids don't care they're like sponges just teach me you know <laughs> yeah but adults yeah, they put it all on you yeah adults have a little more ego that we have to deal with but but it's happening uh, just, it's, just it's a tad. Awesome. yeah it's awesome that we're getting that that done well from the adult perspective i mean i guess one could say that uh, introducing a youngster into hunting can ignite a passion and can point them down a path for later in life, but hunting's expensive. It's a time commitment and they need to have other people in their family or in their friend group who share that same interest. Otherwise the chances of them continuing down that path get slimmer and slimmer. Mind you, if you get an adult who's got more discretionary means and the ability to actually get out and, and hunt from a generating new hunters perspective, I would think without having looked at the numbers, but I would just think that the efforts into the adults would pay huge dividends. It does because one, they can afford, uh, one of the big deterrents to get into hunting is buying gear. That's just huge. I mean, a gun, just a simple gun, is going to cost you a used one, you know, 250, 300 bucks. And, mm-hmm. uh, it, way more if you get a new one and same with bows and other things. So adults usually have the resources to do that where kids may not ever have that till they start working and their parents may or may not want to, you know, get that gun and put it behind the Christmas tree like my folks did. So, <laughs> <laughs> but, 
and but they do. Some of them do, and some of them can't afford it. I mean, a lot of them just cannot afford the the uh, the gear to get into it. So it's not cheap. No, and the clothing, just the clothing. I, I, I have two examples that happened to me early on. I had I go pick up a kid at their house. They'd walk out, of course, in tennis shoes and and uh, holding a Walmart bag with a Gatorade in it. And that happened twice with two different kids. And that was their hunting pack. Was that mm. that Walmart bag with a Gatorade? That's all they had. They didn't have mm-hmm. anything. So I'm kind of looking at them like, well, okay, <laughs> we're not doing any major hiking today, and uh, <laughs> and so. Uh, Getting gear is a big deal. Right. You know, I, and people can get really caught up in the gear thing. There are some necessities. There are some things that you definitely need to get out and hunt. Uh, it doesn't have to be the latest, greatest, uh, name brand camouflage clothing. I think more animals have been taken in blue jeans and plaid shirts and, uh, any of the, uh, the latest, greatest camouflage out there, but there are some essentials and even those ex- essentials aren't cheap. No, they're not. I said, we're looking at programs of uh, people donating used gear and trying to get it out. But again, that takes the logistics and we're, we've been toying with the idea of how would we pull that off? Because there's lots of stuff in people's closets that they're not using anymore that totally. somebody could use. But getting back to your, your, your other topic, I want to go back to that about recruiting people. And it, you know, one of the key dynamics or not dynamics, but the group that we want to get to is the women. Because if you can get a yes. mother, if you can get a mother into hunting, well, she's going to teach her kids. That's right. I mean, and our, our dad too, but for sure the women are. I mean, that just seems like we've been very successful. If we can get a lady into hunting, that most of her kids are going to be hunters as well. So that becoming an outdoor woman or bow program, and mm-hmm. I see it's in a number of states as well, is is huge. And then, you know, my wife went on a, a bow program up here in Canada and she had a great time and then she's part of a woman's fly fishing group now. And she came from a background of wanting to live in the city to, and, and working as a chef at some high end restaurants and that love of cooking naturally went into gardening and went into where does my food come from? And it, and it led to hunting and fishing and these bow programs, I think women are, are the fastest growing demographic in all of hunting in the United States and Canada. And the secondary thing, I guess, on that would be the food aspect. When you start introducing like where the food comes from, because there's for a number of years now, there's, there's been a, and I forget what the term was called. It's, uh, uh, not local vor. Something like that. Yes, yeah, it's uh, like yeah, it's like lacavor or something like that. I've I've heard it as well. Yeah, yeah. Basically, where can I find and whether it's foraging for mushrooms or plants and and whatever it is or fishing and all of these things tend to naturally lead down to a path of hunting and learning the a sustainable food source. I, I think those are two of the the huge areas that are being exploited right now that are introducing so many people into the into the world of hunting. And so one of the things we're working on is trying to recruit as many women mentors as we can because a lot of the spouses of the hunters, we there's it's kind of interesting they're standing there at the outdoor show and of course the guys talking to us and the the mom hunts too. 
And so we're mm. talking to them, so not trying to sign them up. And we look at, always look over and say, what about you? And she kind of looked at us and said, we need more women mentors to especially take out young girls. They feel more comfortable a lot of times with a, a, a lady totally. than they would a crusty old guy, you know. And so yeah. um, we do. We're, we're seeking hard to find good women mentors. And we've got a lot. We've actually got a lot. So if somebody wants to be a mentor with your program, what do they have to do? How do they first, I guess they go to their website and they, they read about it, but what are the next steps? Well, yeah, the, the, the website has a, has a, uh, our programs component. You look under our programs under mentoring and there's a mentor sign up sheet and you sign up on the web and it comes back here to our headquarters and, uh, which is in my loft here in my house. <laughs> yeah. And, yeah. It started on the kitchen table. It was kind of funny. And then my poor wife lost her sewing room and our next step will be a brick and mortar building as we grow. But anyway, we, you it's sign weird. up, <laughs> you sign up and, uh, it comes back and we do a, a criminal background check, which is basically an online to see if there's any criminal history there or anything like that. And I've had to turn a few mm. people down, but, uh, and then once you do that, you basically become a mentor. That's, mm -hmm. that's our criteria is, you know, have you met the state's responsibilities to be a hunter? And then we try to try to get them hooked up with some other people locally and get a chapter going. That's our goal is to get chapters going. Cause if you have say right. 10 people in one area, then you got one of them that's a duck hunter and one of them that's a bow hunter. And so according to the type of skill needed, you hopefully got somebody to shift it off to, but that's what mm -hmm. it is. You go to the website, sign up and it comes in and we do a, a background check on you. So, and this might be a complete aside being a Canadian. I've heard of these programs. I think there's one in Washington. I believe there's one in Oregon called a master hunter program. Yeah. Does that include any level of mentorship with those programs or are you aware of those programs? Oh, am I aware of those programs? Yes. <laughs> okay. <laughs> yeah. fair. No, those are great. Me. Great question. No, the, the, the master hunter programs, they, and they do have one in uh, Washington they have one in Montana, and what they do is, of course, allow those people to have some other options for hunting, draw hunts, depredation hunts, other things that they have. Well, those programs require some sort of um, continuing education or service, and so yeah. we have we have made deals with the state of Washington and currently with Montana that if they sign up as a mentor with the First Hunt Foundation, any of their time mentoring and helping new hunters counts as their continuing education. So it keeps their, ah. keeps their status as a master hunter doing something that they love doing anyway. So it's a great marriage. It's a great marriage for both of us, for the states and for our organization. Because if I understand correctly, with enough uh, volunteer time and efforts into these programs, these master hunters are then afforded, uh, greater land access or, uh, greater limited entry hunting access. Is that, is that a fair assessment? Yes. That's, Am I understanding that correctly? That is, as I understand it, because it's not here in Idaho where I live, but mm. it, yeah, there's certain areas that only master hunters are allowed to go certain draws hunts that I think only master hunters are allowed to put in for kind of limited entry for, for master, master hunters. I think there may be some depredation kind of tags that are reserved for master hunters. So they get some benefits out of being a master hunter. And by serving as a volunteer with us, it counts toward their credit hours that they need to keep that. They have to, they have to keep that certification up. They can't just sign up one time. They got every year got to do so many hours to stay a master hunter. 
that is fantastic. Yeah, and everything awesome. they do with yeah, and then everything they do with you guys helps build towards that. So it's just win-win all the way around. It definitely is. In fact, in Washington State, when we met with those folks, we had something like fifty or sixty mentors sign up in a week. It was crazy. Whoa. Well, and the other thing, this is what's interesting, is that, at least in Washington State, the master hunters, they encouraged them already to go out mentoring. But they were, the state was concerned because there was no liability insurance provided by the state. And so mm. by hooking up with us, they get to be covered under our liability insurance because we do have liability insurance for the mentor. So if a mentor takes somebody out and, heaven forbid, something happens and they were to be sued, then they would be protected mm. under our liability coverage. So, Rick, you guys are in 28 states, growing like crazy. What's the future hold? Well, you know, our goal is, of course, to be in all 50 states here in the in the U.S., any, any place that they allow hunting. As, uh, our goal is to just get it to be the largest new hunter mentoring organization out there. So when somebody thinks of mentoring, they think of First Hunt Foundation, which means mm. we, we do two things. One is we recruit as many mentors as we can. And two is we start offering programs and training, which we're starting to work on now with events. And you can't do that, of course, till you get organized with leaders. And so you get the events going where you have training days for either new mentees or mentors. And we're doing that Last year, we did one in Wyoming where we had 10 new hunters and 10, I think, mentors go to the same training. And at the end of the week, they actually got to go hunting antelope. So they actually got trained one week or three, four days. Wow. And then went, then went hunting and harvested an animal. And then they talked about processing the animal. So that's all part of it. So we want to be kind of known as the, the full deal where we're providing opportunities for folks to go hunting, training new people, mentors on how to go hunting and how to mentor and someday have a certification program to be a mentor. I mean, other people have talked about that. Uh, I don't, that would be a tough one to get everybody. Some people don't want to be certified. They just mm. let me, let me take people out and I'm fine. And we're okay with that because mm -hmm. it meets our mission of getting new hunters out, but mm -hmm. to bring it to the next level and to get some highly trained people, that's would help everybody. I think that's our goal. We got the first hunt out of the way. What, what about the second hunt? Can people phone you back? I mean, do you find people who are just calling over and over it? Hey, let's go to another hunt. Let's go to another hunt. Cause I could see some people just getting addicted to it and right. maybe not intentionally, but abusing the, the, uh, the process. Well, it, yeah. So that's kind of a misnomer when we named it first hunt was the first giving that first hunt experience, not having a first mm. hunt. And so the first hunt experience is just a one experience. And you can't, you can't train a person one time, let them shoot an animal, and say, you're done, never more. Right. I, I've got one young man that I've been with for four years, and I still would go out with him, even though he's a mentor now and training wow. people. The real term of mentoring is a relationship. And then there are three movement. There's a talk now that we shouldn't be using the word mentor. It should be coach unless you're going to really be sticking time, a long time with people. I don't personally agree with that. You're mentoring for mm. one day, you're mentoring for a lifetime. And so I agree. And so that's kind of where we're at. Uh, so we want it to be a long-term relationship. That's the best kind. And so, yeah, it's multiple hunts. The one kid, I took him on his first deer hunt, his first elk hunt. 
his first bear hunt, his first duck hunt, his first coyote hunt. I mean, there's all these first hunts, and we give certificates too, by the way. Like your son, he could have went online and you could get a certificate for the first deer hunt, mule deer, whitetail, whatever it is, and then they get a certificate in the mail unbeknownst to them that it's coming kind of a surprise because the kid gets a big envelope instead of mom and dad and they open it up and there's a letter i'm right now i'm able to write letters thinking i'm get a little information i hear you shot your first deer with your grandpa's 30 30 they're going how did this people know that you know and uh and they get their <laughs> certificate so it's like there's this anti-hunter group out there saying you're a bad person for doing this there's our group out there going, no, you're a great person for doing this and put this certificate on the wall to remember this event in your life, you know? And so that is fantastic. So we do that for anybody, whether we mentor them or not, anybody can go to our website and, and get that certificate and that letter. And so that's one of the things we do. I'm kind of proud. We've sent hundreds and hundreds of those out across the nation. Love to send some to Canada. <laughs> <laughs> that is fantastic. I know his uh, graduation certificate, just the paperwork he has there. He says, dad, can we make a frame and, yeah. and frame this and put it up on the wall? Like, Not a problem. Let's make a frame. We'll go into the shop, made something up. And, but there's, uh, there's definitely, I, I, you're, you're definitely onto something here, Rick. This is, um, a fantastic foundation. I'm really liking everything that I'm learning about it because I've been doing some reading online as well. Is there anything that we should be talking about that uh, we haven't brought up yet? Well, one of the well, we haven't talked about the negative side of things, I guess. When you're when well, you, oh, sure. Yeah, you know, well, I mean, it's not a big. It's we're making it happen regardless, but it takes money to make anything mm. happen. And so, if you build a nonprofit or anything from the ground up, it's like building a company from scratch. And currently, right now, I can say that we are one of the only organizations doing as much as we're doing that has absolutely no paid staff, including myself. No one gets paid. We're all, wow. vol we're all volunteers. And, you know, I'm putting in 40 to 60 hours a week and I honestly am doing that. And I'm okay with that because I'm retired and I have an income from my retirement. So it takes a lot to fund an organization. And so our insurance, we pay for the insurance. That's a, that's a big bill. We spend $10,000 in making caps that have our logo on it to give out to kids or new hunters. I mean, we give them away. We don't, mm. don't make a penny on them. Go into these shows. You may be three or four or $5,000 going to a show to recruit more people to take more hunters out. So there's a lot mm. of money. So we're a nonprofit and you're always out there with your hand out trying to, to uh, find grants to fund the cause. We're going to, mm. we're going to start a membership here soon. That's uh, there's a supporting membership. So folks who believe in what we're doing could become a member of the first hunt foundation and they'll get a free knife, which we had, was it uh, 1500 knives donated by the Rocky mountain elk foundation, about $8,000 worth of knives. So wow. stuff like that, that we can try to, so my goal to keep this sustainable is to find a funding source eventually that we're not mm. constantly having to chase grants down and, and I, I don't know what that is yet so we're always thinking outside the box what would you know sell a product you know do something that would keep keep the foundation going win the lottery you know <laughs> yeah yeah just keep buying those lottery tickets <laughs> yeah so so uh, i mean anyway that's an issue yeah. So if somebody wanted to donate to the First Hunt Foundation, is that just done online? Oh, yeah. And we get some of that. Yeah, you can go online and there's a donate button. I mean, and we're going to start some national here locally 
or in the U.S. some national raffles. We're going to try to get going for some big items, maybe a high-end uh, hunting rifle or something like that, which could generate some money as well. Mm-hmm. And if we wanted to kind of group think sustainable revenue generation, a model that kind of will keep revenue coming into the first hunt foundation. If somebody wanted to contact you, is all that contact information on the, on the website? If someone listened to this has ideas and say, you know what you should do, they can just contact you through the site. Oh yeah. Yeah. There's a spot on the site where you can contact us and, and uh, call me. I think probably the numbers on there as well. So I'm always open to those ideas, but so, and I tend to kind of shy away from the negative side of things. Like I, I know the, the formula for popular podcasts would be controversy, but I always trying to impart some sort of positivity and, and learning message through each one of these podcasts. But, you know, if we're talking about some of the negative here, are, are you encountering any pushback from any anti-hunting groups? Uh, not yet, but I'm sure those days will happen. I mean, I have right. my, my truck has logos all over it, so... I keep thinking sometimes when I'm traveling across the country that I'm going to get, you know, egged or something. Window smashed or. Yeah, window yeah. smashed or something when I come out of the motel. But I have people pass me on the interstate with a big thumbs up because on the back That's of good. my. Yeah, on the back of my truck, it literally has a picture. Uh, you can't tell it's me leaning over, whisp- whispering to a young girl who has a rifle. You can tell at a shooting range. And so it's, it's a message like here we're helping kids learn how to shoot guns. It's right on the back of the truck. And so mm-hmm. when people pass me, a lot of them are just big thumbs up, like, hey, way to go, because I'm sure they're hunters or outdoors people. But right. I suppose somebody could drive by and give me other gestures. They haven't done that yet. <laughs> I got a couple other digits on the hand, but no, that's... <laughs> So we, we've covered sort of where you've been, where you look to be going, some of the difficulties that you've encountered, which doesn't seem like you've encountered really a heck of a lot of pushback. Is that a fair assessment? That's a fair assessment. In fact, at least with the States, everybody we've talked to is excited that somebody's doing what we're doing. And I think a lot of nonprofits don't last very long, you know, like businesses that last a year or two. And now we're going on our sixth right. year. And lots of numbers that we're producing. The COVID numbers will be down for 2020. We haven't done that data yet. And we're, mm-hmm. our name recognition is getting out there. So I think that's all going to help. And we teach conservation. Mm-hmm. It's not just about killing something. It's teaching about the woods and nature. And I mean, it, it, you got to take advantage of that time you're out there besides just teaching a hunting skill. Let's, let's talk about conservation. Let's talk about, uh, you know, because hunting is conservation in the future. And that, I mean, I worked, I was a wildlife biologist originally in my career in the forest service before I became a, a line officer. And so I was all about fur fishing game and critters. And, and so I love teaching people about nature and what's out there. So that's a big part of it as well. And so that's the white hat part. I mean, I've got hardcore conservation uh, organizations that know me and they are supporting what I'm doing because they think it's a good thing. Well, so many people equate hunting, so many non-hunters will equate hunting with the actual process of harvesting the animal when that accounts for less than 1%. Well, you're pulling that trigger. That's your time of pro- harvesting the animal. All the other time is a preparation and the study and is spent with animal identification and learning the environment and, uh, and the whole conservation movement is just hugely ingrained into the hunting perspective, but a lot of people non-hunters, they don't see that. 
Uh, when I look at new hunters that are looking to get into hunting, uh, they're not necessarily like you or I, they don't come from the same sort of backgrounds as you or I, we might have some hipsters wanting to get into hunting for reasons that are the idea of sustainability and, and finding, uh, lo local food. Are you, are you finding any difficulties in bridging the gap between some of the new hunters and existing hunters? I don't think so. I think we're finding that with most of the hunters, if I understand your question, that we recruit are just excited to teach anybody about hunting. And so mm. if somebody comes in with different ideals or values or backgrounds, they don't, I haven't ran into anybody that had an issue with any of the new hunters coming in yet. Mm -hmm. You know, it's so exciting to, for what we're doing. I've had several experiences that stick with me. I mean, when you've been hunting, I'm going to be 67 here probably in a few weeks. And I've hunted since I was like in the eighth, eighth grade for sure. And uh, so when I go pick up a kid to go like turkey hunting and you're going real early in the morning, and to me it's just like another day to go turkey hunting. I'm excited about it. But the kid looks at me and says, I couldn't sleep last night. I was so excited thinking about this. I couldn't sleep. And it reminds me, mm. it brings back that flood of memories of when I was a kid and I was so excited to go hunting and nobody to take me. And I remember the one time when my dad's uncles came and they were going to go hunting. And I, I don't know how old it was. It wasn't very old. And they wouldn't take me because, you know, I was a kid and the guys were going to go out and do their thing. And I remember crying, thinking, I wanted to be there so bad. They wouldn't take me. And I, so when I hear a kids say they couldn't sleep because they were so excited and they were so thankful to have that opportunity, I know we're doing the right thing. I know what we're doing mattered to that kid probably for the rest of their life. And that just, just, that's what keeps us going, man. That's, you know, the organizational stuff sometimes is a pain in the butt because it's, it's that admin, you got to make it happen to make all these, those experiences happen. And when one of them happens and you feel it and see it, it's just amazing. I, I had another right. one. I got to tell you, it, it touched me where I taught this young boy for years. And the first deer he shot, it was raining and getting dark. So I, I feel dressed as animal. I said, we got to get this done. It's raining. I, I just shut, hold the light. I'll get it done. Got it done. The next year, I took him out to have another experience. He shot his, his first deer or second deer and it was daylight. And I said, oh, good. You get to do it. So talked him through it he did all that i didn't touch anything and the next he called me that night and he says my grandfather is excited about me hunting and he's never hunted would you take him hunting and i knew him and his grandfather fish i said sure so about two days later i took him mm. and uh his grandfather out hunting he'd never hunted before he shot before and so he shot this little buck, a little spike buck, and we walked over, and I was just about to go through the process of teaching him how to do that. And I looked over to Jordan. Jordan was our number one mentor, mentor, mentee number one. And I said, Jordan, teach your grandfather how to do this. And I stood there and watched the grandson teach his grandfather how to fill dress a deer. And it, it just, like, blew me away. It's like... It's not passing it forward. It's passing it back or something. I'm not sure yeah. what it is. <laughs> so That's just fantastic. I know, and I'll never forget that. And they didn't forget it, and they started putting in for hunts and going hunting together, and I created two hunters by creating one, and it was just, it was amazing. 
Man, Rick, I really, really enjoy speaking with you. I really enjoy your passion for the, for hunting, for bringing this into other people's lives. I, it's contagious. I tell you that much. It Th is. Thank you very much for taking the time to talk with me on the Silvercore podcast. Well, thanks, Travis. I appreciated the opportunity. 